from Relay FM. This is Downstream, a podcast about the present and future of streaming media. This is episode number 18, recorded May 17th, 2022. I'm Jason Snell, joined as always by Julia Alexander. Uh, not with this title, though, Director of Strategy at Parrot Analytics. Julia, congratulations on the promotion. Aw, thanks, Jason. Hi, how are you? Uh, I'm doing great. Uh, so you get some more more work, more stress, I guess, in your, in yeah, your job just- now? Some some additional stress, but honestly, like, what is life without a little stress? You've moved from analysis to direction, <laughs> so that's a that's a great step forward, I say. Yeah, I made a great joke when I got promoted, and I said, "Do I get to make movies now?" And um, no one laughed, but I was like, "This is what directors do, right? They make films." You know, um, I, so I'm not making any movies at this point. I was apparently. an executive editor at one point, and I explained to my editors that that meant I got to choose. Um, which editors would be executed and they did not appreciate that at all. Uh, yeah, titles, they're fun. Uh, they I have some follow up for us um, mm-hmm. based on previous episodes and things we've talked about. First of which is um, we were talking about, uh, I think it was a letter about extras, like uh, video extras, like you get on a DVD or a Blu ray that added content and how maybe streaming services were not taking advantage of that same kind of thing to add sort of stickiness around the thing you watch with a bunch of bonus material. And the example we gave, I think, was that there's a great documentary about Turning Red and the making of that, that Pixar movie that is yes. not in the extras for turning red because it's a separate thing you could also say it's for all the kind of marvel and star wars behind the scenes things they don't seem to be directly linked they're their own shows and that there's a missed opportunity there we heard from a listener to this podcast who used to be on the inside of the technical and content delivery part of disney so and without mentioning this person's name or too much about them i will read a little bit about what this person said so uh this person said the turning red thing is a technical choice that has the uh, systems draw hard distinctions between titles and supplemental content, which then affects how content can surface inside the apps. Disney Plus, unlike Hulu, has very limited capabilities on programming how individual titles come up on the service. I suspect this will get better soon as more Hulu ideas merge with the broader Disney streaming organization. My second observation is none of the services are doing anything interesting for discovery. These apps all look the same for navigation. All are doing similar things for recommendations. It's also basic. I'd love to see features where people get dropped into content right away. I mean, honestly, the silly promo video they show in some hotels promoting the movies available at the hotel's pay-per-view would be better than an endless <laughs> scrolling list of tiles. I miss the serendipity of surfing across cable channels. And the bigger point, our letter writer goes on, how well well, are the companies really using the data they're getting from the direct-to-consumer experiences? Given the mm-hmm. supply chain work, given the newness of these platforms and the operations and systems transformations that need to happen, how much can they apply the data they're getting to enable new discovery experiences or new content planning decisions? These are huge questions given the Netflix subscriber guidance. And I believe this person went on to say it would be interesting to see what will happen if there's a flood of maybe people technical people leaving netflix who might be picked off by some of these other organizations i thought really you know interesting behind the scenes um view of uh, what we kind of suspected right which is uh you know everybody was just trying to get these services launched and and there are lots of technical issues behind the scenes where they make a decision like this decision with disney plus is like it's either a title or it's supplemental and there was a an anecdote that this person told that i didn't read about how there was a moment where uh, they wanted to promote something that had been marked as supplemental material and they had to scramble to get it turned into a title so that it could actually appear outside of the the thing it was supplementing and like cheese so basically it's ugly on the it's exactly as ugly on the inside perhaps as we suspected <laughs> yeah yeah i mean i actually think that our lovely reader um who sent us some very good 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 you know some some inside thoughts um, i think they bring up a really really good point which is there is about to be a lot of talent on the market yeah um whether it comes from netflix kind of acting like a traditional business in the sense where netflix is no longer able to kind of carry on with this um i don't use the word arrogance because it's not but you know when they're top dog you're able to do things at a way that other companies just cannot and now they are hitting a point where they have to act like a traditional company and so that means that a lot of their talent especially those who came into the company and took big rsu options with the stock um and that you know the company is now has a very very um small market cap compared to where it was you know um six months ago um 
I think that a lot of those employees are now going to be looking at, well, where can I go where there is a high, a stronger focus on streaming and I might be able to get paid a little bit more. I might get be able to pay a little bit more concretely in cash or whatever, whatever they're looking for specifically. Where can I go that might get me out of Los Angeles or San Francisco or move me to New York or whatever it might be. And I think it's a really great opportunity for these companies like Disney and Warner who are really great on the content side but are still trying to figure out the technical side. And the Netflix teams are extremely good with the technical side of things. Mm-hmm. So I'm very, very curious to, you know, kind of stalk some locked, uh, some LinkedIn pages and, and see whether those moves start happening. Because it's it's about to be a really great market for talent, um, in part because we are entering, well, we are in a bear market and we are probably entering a recession. Um, so it's going to be rough times, you know, in general. But I think for um, companies that can withstand it and for companies who can actually use that moment to really invest in talent acquisition and within strengthening their products that the street's really interested in. I think there's going to be some some pretty significant moves away from Netflix and into some of the more tr- more traditional, once thought upon linear companies. Because to, to our, our reader, our listener's point, um, that's the issue that a lot of them face. Yeah. Yeah. And, and th- this is so new that I think that there's also a, a, an expectation that some people have that, you know, what we have is what we're going to get. And I choose to be more optimistic because I believe that, yeah, the, all the stuff that we've been talking about in terms of, of using the data better, in terms of having more sticky kind of content around the core content and driving people to the right place, like all of that increases engagement. All of that presumably reduces churn. Like, in a competitive environment, especially when people may be leaving Netflix and going to other places and all those platforms are getting up to speed and and they're looking around for the next challenge other than like, can you get the app to work, right? When you get to the next level, I think there is going to be innovation where it's not going to just be a long parade of tiles and there's no extra content or the extra content is siloed. And like, I do think we'll see that and that services will be kind of competing on the UI front more than they are right now. But yes. we're not there yet because, uh, you know, really, I, HBO, I will say this, um, HBO's new app, which is on the Apple TV now, because I, I, I stream all my stuff on Apple TV, they, they, they used to use the HBO Max app, basically. That was their HBO or the HBO Go app became, I see I've even forgotten which HBO it was. The HBO <laughs> Go app became the HBO Max app and it was not great. And then they did an update where it sort of like didn't play things right and they had to like revert to the, the standard Apple player. Well, they had a new uh, app update and it is not better in terms of its user interface, I would say. It's uh, maybe only a little better. It's not super innovative, but I just had that moment where I thought, oh, see, uh, you know, they took the last year and really fix their app and it's like ah i i think it was a moment where i realized this is what is now happening in the background of a lot of these places is they yes. got the first thing up and if they were able to meet the launch criteria to do hbo max and then they looked at their app and they're like this is not going to work and they built another app in the background and then they pushed it out so we're going to see more of that like as we leave the definitely the, that gold rush of like oh we got to be there we got to launch a, a service and all the technical people are looking at each other like we can't do that. Uh, and and now we're on the other side of it. So I, I hope to see a lot of technical improvement and innovation. But who knows? Yeah, I hope they just hang out inside different apps. It's one of those things like, you know, yeah. you, you, um, you, I know like, you know, the media industry well, I know the media industry well. And one of the things you do in the media industry is you read a lot or you watch a lot. Like you kind of just look at what other yeah. people are doing. That's natural. The way that any blue chip company would just be hyper aware of what their competitors are doing and what consumers want. And it feels like, a lot of the streaming services that came from linear uh, were companies that were once linear networks, I should say, um, and linear focused really, you know, put that emphasis on the content, which is still necessary because content, you know, is 65 percent, I would argue at this point, 70 percent still the main driver. People will put up with um, lesser quality UI if it, if the content is there. Yeah. HBO Max is a great example a year ago. Um, but that other, you know. 35, 30% is going to become increasingly stronger as content becomes more competitive, as people really start to figure out, you know, what different pockets of consumers want. And so I'm just like, hang out inside other apps, like mm-hmm. browse around, like see what that's like, like actually spend three, you know, three hours sitting in different apps and watching something. And even if it's not a full thing, like go and experience that instead of just being hyper aware of what's being made, be hyper aware of what's being made and 
how it's being uh, uh, distributed and who that possible audience is, who's going to come in and really notice these, right. you know, small little touches. And I think that that is something that I know we've talked about and that I talked about back on the old uh, TV Talk Machine podcast with him uh, is this idea that the, the the decision makers at a lot of these companies are still people who are who are viewing them well some of the decision makers are just essentially money people but there's somebody high yeah. up in the chain who is in charge of the creative content and you end up with the a huge amount of weight being given toward making a good show which is great like making a good show but when you're direct to consumer some it's not you're now responsible for the consumer uh, that direct to consumer relationship you and and culturally a lot of these companies are not used to it disney actually is at least in the theme park side which yes. is one of the i think pro bob chapek arguments is that he actually comes from he doesn't come from the streaming part of the business or the movie part of the business but he did come from the direct to consumer part of the business yes. because you need people with authority to make decisions and spend money who actually will look at the apps that you're running your service on and say, this isn't good enough. Uh, and I think a lot of these places, it's still sort of like, Hey, are, how are the shows? Are the shows good? Well, then we're fine. And they're not even paying attention to the fact that they've got this technical issue. That is how they manage their direct to consumer relationship. And yes. I, I do think culturally they're all changing, but the ones who change faster are going to be better at this and they're going to, and they're going to learn and they're going to use that data. And I think, think you know it's not it is all about the content but like there is this other issue which is which is keeping that relationship and driving people to more content in order to keep them from churning away from you so uh, you know we'll keep watching it i i just i keep hoping that somebody's going to do something innovative and if and if they are doing what you're saying which is spending time looking at this stuff they'll do something innovative and then you'll see everybody else go oh and they'll copy it and then we're getting somewhere <laughs> so, exactly uh we will we will see uh but thank you to our listener who used to be on the inside for that information it was fascinating um wanted to mention we talked about the the cw which is a broadcast network but mm. um but is a streaming story because uh as my understanding and there's a nice hollywood reporter story that i'll put in our our show notes um you know CW was successful in large part because um, Paramount and Warner were able to put shows on it and then resell them internationally to like Netflix and make money. And all of that is kind of coming apart now. And the the uh, CW is for sale. And the biggest move, the reason that there's some follow up about this, uh, biggest move to happen recently is they announced their cancellations and the network that never canceled anything canceled like half their shows. And this is all kind of like part of the prepping the CW for sale um, because, you you know, it makes sense financially for paramount and warner but it doesn't make sense financially to whoever buys the cw because it was we're going to make money on the studio side by losing money in the cw and that doesn't work you know nobody it doesn't who's going to buy that who's going to buy the money loser uh that just props up someone else's studios so uh so they canceled a bunch of stuff and um and it's it's kind of stuff it's kind of sad because creatively um they kind of did a lot with a little, and I wonder if if there's a future for the CW strategy inside uh, Warner or Paramount or both uh, using maybe uh, ad supported, you know, free ad supported streaming stuff or 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 at HBO Max or Paramount Plus or what. But but the party's breaking up at the CW. <laughs> Exactly. I mean, so I think the network itself was always operating at a net loss for both those companies. It was the the idea of the network existing in terms of like how we envision a network, something that you would turn you would go to when you turn your TV on. Um, that never made sense for them. But where they made all of their money, and we're talking billions of dollars, was in um, foreign licensing. So going overseas and kind of licensing it out to uh, – so, so a great example always um, is kind of like a Netflix and Amazon overseas. They call CW shows kind of Netflix and Amazon originals, even though they're not, uh, because the CW has that deal with them. And then domestically, the CW had a massive, massive pact with Netflix because Netflix um, consumers 
really love CW shows. The CW could uh, gain what they, what was called the Netflix effect. They could gain a viewership bump, you know, going into a next season for a show like Riverdale or whatever it might be from that Netflix audience. They could make a lot of money through it. Um, and so at the time with these parent companies, if you're Viacom CBS or Warner Brothers, uh, at this point it was, I think it was still Warner Media. It wasn't even Warner Media. It was still Turner, I think at this point. Um, none of these companies no longer have these names. Uh, but at the time you could go, well, we're going to use the funds coming from here. To create more shows for the CW, sure. But we're also going to use it to kind of just pocket Warner Brothers Television, which is a great, great production house that makes a lot of TV shows, um, and CBS Studios, which makes a lot of TV shows. So it made a lot of sense. The reason this was allowed was because legally, there are a lot of um, restrictions around how the vertical integration effectively with the networks and the studio operators and the cable operators uh, uh, worked. A lot of the rules before the 80s uh, said you can't do this. If you have a network and you have a production studio, you cannot then make shows inherently just for that thing. And that it was it was it was really, really complicated. It was like there was a bunch of issues that's prevented a lot of vertical integration from happening on the cable side. Um, then the 80s happened and it became much more lax. Uh, and so the, so a bunch of companies like, like, uh, CBS jumped on and Warner Brothers jumped on. So why don't we combine something together and we will profit from this and we'll make shows specifically for this one network together and then we'll sell them internationally. And we kind of both profit from this, um, worked really well for a long time. And now we're kind of in this reverse scenario where Warner Brothers Discovery, Paramount Global are saying we have streaming services and we want to go international. And it's very, very important to us to have a footprint both domestically and internationally. So all of a sudden, the idea of selling to major competitors in markets like the United Kingdom, in markets like um, Japan or wherever it might be, doesn't make any more sense because they want to retain those shows for uh, their own streaming services. Now, on top of that, a lot of the CW shows were not necessarily ratings like gangbusters. Like these were not hugely watched shows, but they kept making them. So a show like Dynasty, which ran like six, five or six seasons, the show did not have a strong viewership. It found a bit of an audience on streaming, like thanks to Netflix. Um, but that show was still valuable. And that's why they kept renewing it to Paramount and Warner Media because they could make a ton of money off the Netflix pack and sell those rights internationally. Like that was why they kept doing it over and over. When you no longer have billions and billions of dollars of revenue coming in, you now have to start acting like the other networks you're operating. So which means you're going to cancel more shows than you're going to renew for the most part. I mean, you're really just going to lean on your strong ones. So for Warner Brothers, that's a lot of the DC stuff. Um, for the C, for uh, Paramount, that's a lot of like the Nancy Drew stuff. I mean, that's like there's an audience there for those shows. Mm -hmm. And they kind of just say, well, we're going to take those and then we'll take them internally. Um, when we go out to market it, uh, with our streaming services internationally, we can launch with these. We'll have them domestically. My question when this started happening, because this has been coming for a long, long, long time. The CW has been, to Jason's point, a streaming story for a very long time. Um, there are secondary markets in like Europe, uh, Asian Pacific, Latin America, where third party strategic partnerships can actually happen to keep internationally, international financing secured, um, while the essential markets are built up. And so the demand and valuation for CW titles on a platform can be determined, um, versus the, the potential value of licensing a product, uh, in the time that you are launching those key markets. And I wonder why they wouldn't just keep part of the deals going with the secondary markets in in those in those regions because you can kind of say like well we yeah we want to have you know Batgirl or whatever it is in the UK and in, in Spain in Germany like in France like these are areas that we really are going to launch first in and we want to see what our audience thing is like but you've got secondary markets like there's parts of Eastern Europe there are you know there's areas in Asia Pacific and Latin that you can go into and say like there's still enough demand both from like the broadcasters and the and the OTTs operating here so it's like Amazon and Netflix to say like we can still give you this at a discounted price because it's not as much, but you're still going to make generate some revenue to then put into content spend in general, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so the CW to me is this really, really interesting, important question about streaming, which is like, at what point do you say we're going to take this massive hit because we think having a third of these shows available exclusively on our platform is actually going to turn out to be a net positive going forward because that's how we're going to rebrand our originals that we would have on the CW versus why would you not just necessarily go region by region, market by market? 
uh, and say like, oh, actually, like we don't know if there's an audience here who's going to sign up for Paramount Plus or sign up for HBO Max as much as we want to try. But we know they have Netflix. We know they're still using paid TV and there's an and we know they like CW shows. Uh, and so we can kind of continue licensing, licensing out to them and, and really working with those relationships we have there. So I think about the CW quite often, uh, in part because I think it's a really intrinsic and interesting question within the streaming uh, wars in general, within this idea of like moving to direct to consumer and how that affects overall change at all these studios. Um, and so to end my rant, I think paying attention to what happens with the CW going forward, including licensing, including what they keep internally, including what happens with the network itself, which will be less interesting to listeners of the show because it's not streaming related, but will be interesting to people who really just love media and want to like learn more about linear television. Um, I think the CW is going to be a story to keep an eye on for for quite some time. Yeah, it is a it's I, I get it. It's a kind of a side effect of streaming yeah. moves, but it is fascinating. Right. And I mean, you could also argue that something like the Fox um, television network here in the U.S. is a similar thing where it's sort of been shorn of uh, the its studio and is is changing the way it programs because of it. And it's a, again, a side effect of like what happens to broadcast nets when streaming is dominant. And, and the answer is yes. they're still, they're still around. They still got stuff to do. It's just not, it's going to be different and the calculations are going to be different. Um, let's shift gears and talk about Netflix. Now I, I had a personal note I wanted to make here, which is I feel like we talk about Netflix here a lot. Uh, and, and of course, they're the number one streamer. Why would we not? Except I've been talking about streaming on various podcasts for several years now. And what's funny is we almost never talked about Netflix. Maybe like shows on Netflix. But in terms of the streaming wars stuff, back when I was doing TVTM with Tim Goodman, um, streaming wars were always about everybody else trying to catch up to Netflix. Netflix was just cruising, right? They're just dominant. And so everything was about every everybody else and not about Netflix. But since we started this podcast, Julia, it's all about Netflix now because it's like we're entering a new era where everybody else is sort of ca- catching up to Netflix. Netflix's business model has to change. And so I just didn't think going into this that we would spend so much time talking about Netflix. But the fact is, right now, Netflix is the most interesting story in streaming after being kind of not interesting, just dominant for many, many years. It's what a change. The thing about Netflix that's super interesting is that it's this North Star, right? So I think to your exact point, Jason, like it's the biggest streaming service. Like, how do you not talk about Netflix without talking about streaming? And we co-host a streaming podcast, so it's going to come up quite a bit. Um, I think what has changed fundamentally, though, is because Netflix is this North Star and because everyone is seemingly copying the Netflix playbook, when Netflix loses more than $200 billion in, in valuation in the blink of an eye – all of a sudden, everyone from executives of these companies to the to the street and the analysts on it to um, like my parents who text me about Netflix business, they usually don't. They usually just text me about what I'm watching on Netflix. Uh, like all of a sudden, it's this thing about, well, what does this mean for us going forward? And us being the consumer, us being the, the industry, us being the company, you know, a different company. Um, and so it's really hard to just not talk about Netflix. But I I, I want to add on to something you said, because we do talk about Netflix a lot. And I think it can be really easy for it to come across like we are maybe brooding against it. for And I'm not like I think I really want I think Netflix is a great business. I think Netflix is figuring stuff out. I think Netflix adding ads. I think Netflix trying to maybe debate about whether they should go and be in theaters for a handful of movies for 30 days and really expand the brand longevity. Um, I think all of those different questions just reiterate that Netflix has to start acting like a, a you know almost a traditional entertainment and media business. Yeah. Um, it ran as a tech business for so long, and I know this question is like at this point really obnoxious because like what even is the difference anymore between a tech and a media company? But uh, like Apple's winning Oscars, like who you know like what does it mean anymore? But but I do think they were able to run the way that Google and Facebook and Apple were without an Amazon, without having the 10,000 other tentacles that allow them to run the way that uh, Google and like, Facebook, Amazon, et cetera, et cetera, were able to. And now they're more in line with how their competitors are working. I think if you're there, if you're the competitor, if you're if you're sitting there, you're kind of like, oh, 
we thought Netflix, you know, had a TAM like of a billion people. And they were going to hit that by like 2027. And it was like, who knows what that's going to be. Those are just random numbers I'm throwing out. But now it's kind of like, oh, well, we're all in this kind of business. We're figuring this out together and pay TV is declining. But, you know, like and, and declining, you know, increasingly every single quarter. But it's not necessarily going to be overturned overnight. And so we're trying to figure out how to allocate our resources and be into the be in the future while also not giving up our present stance. And I think as Netflix hits this moment of like, what does Netflix do next? All of a sudden that trickles down to every mm. other company. And that's, I guess why you have to talk about it. I like the idea. Right, you're right. We're not like out to get Netflix or anything. No. But it is the, the fascinating question is, what is Netflix going to be when it grows up? Because it, it got to it got to it moved so soon. It moved so early and it was able to become so dominant that it was kind of boring for a while. And it's not like we're we're saying, oh, great. Now they're having trouble. It's fun. But it's more like when they were cruising, they were just cruising. What do you say? Yeah. Netflix, number one. Great. All right. Next it was not that interesting. And now yeah. it's at least there are things for us to talk about, but we're not delighting in their troubles. It's more like I want to I want to see how they solve these problems and and what what is the next step for Netflix? So let's take them in turn. You you mentioned movies and theaters. Um, <laughs> this has been a thing that 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 the theater owners and and Netflix have gone back and forth over it, and there has not been a uh, a resolution. But uh, there's a Lucas Shaw story at Bloomberg about how uh, he, he puts it well. He's sort of like, look, it's not like they haven't been talking, despite the acrimony in public. They've been talking forever, and they're still talking about it. But it feels like this new Netflix. There is more of a likelihood that Netflix is going to consider taking some of its movies and putting them in theaters um, before they're on Netflix as a not just as an awards thing, but actually doing it um, like the Knives Out sequel, which is coming out. That yes. was like, oh, well, that'll just pop on Netflix. It's like, well, maybe it'll be in your local theater first. Isn't that interesting? And that's very different for Netflix. Although one of the arguments and I, I, I want to know what you think about all of this, but especially let's start with this one. The argument that being in theaters is also really good promotion for your thing that then shows up on Netflix and that maybe it's a good thing for Netflix, just like it is when these other hit movies come onto a streaming service. You're like, well, if you don't want to see it in the theater, that's okay because you know about this movie everyone's talking about and in 30 yeah. or 45 days, guess what? It's on Netflix and then you're going to want to see it. Yeah, and I, th what was interesting about this is Lionsgate CEO brought this up on I can't remember if it was this earnings call or the or the call before or he did an interview with someone. I read it somewhere, um, and he talked about this the, this approach they had with Netflix. So they said, "Why don't you let us co-distribute it with you? You know, we take it in theaters, and and we'll and we'll handle all of that for you." And this is an important part because they're effectively saying we'll handle marketing for you, which is something and it's key to because Netflix has never spent money on marketing and the marketing you need to compete theatrically is insane. So why when we talk about Disney budgets, it's like, you know, $200 million for a movie and then like 150 in marketing. Like they spend so they spend about the equivalent on on a, on a film, you know, more or less, definitely less, never more uh, on marketing, on marketing for that title. Uh, because they want it to be the biggest thing in the world. They need to, they want to hit a billion dollars on a, you know, $400 million investment. Like that's a huge thing for them. Uh, Netflix doesn't really spend a lot of money on marketing, all things considered, especially for its films. And to be in that space requires a lot of that money. So if you're a Lionsgate and you're saying, listen, we're going to come through, we're going to co-distribute this for you. Maybe we'll like co-finance it. We get 30 to 45 days in theaters. We're going to take that. That's our thing. And then we're going to give this to you. You get like there's no pay one window. You guys get it exclusively after that, um, you know, add a, additional features or whatever. Like, you know, act like a Disney Plus. Put in a featurette. Like, like throw something up there that maybe people, the fans of Knives Out are super interested in. And Netflix has to own that. And they said no because Netflix, you know, operates very much on its own, on its own, uh, in, in a lot of those ways. But you have to think like this is where Netflix can really benefit. If your main thing is like one, your subscriber growth is, is slowing. That's your major concern. But two, part of the reason your subscriber growth is slowing is because your brand recognition is not necessarily pristine anymore. It is very much kind of muddled, networky, where it's like, yeah, there might be something I'm into, but for the most part, everything feels kind of blah. Um, and you're losing on your cash because your subscriber growth is slowing and because your other avenues are not necessarily popping as much as they should right now. All of a sudden, you kind of go like, well, theatricality is not necessarily going to pull us a profit. Because I want, I really want to be clear about that. The, 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 
the way that Netflix would be coming in right now into a theatrical market that is not as crowded as it was pre-pandemic, but is crowded with extremely strong IP, uh, that is crowded with certain titles that own, you know, two, three weeks at the box office still. And you're going to have, let's say if you're Netflix, you do five to eight movies, hypothetically. Like they, there was a rumor, I think uh, Lucas wrote in his piece that there was a suggestion they do 12 to 14. That's absolutely insane. Like, like that's, you don't need 12 to 14 movies in theaters if you're Netflix. Five to eight, you know, a kind of handful that you pick that are your 150, $200 million movies that you want to put in there. You're new for 45 days. They're kind of big sci-fi, big action, whatever, you know, big stars, whatever it is. Um, you spend the marketing budget on it. What it's going to do is just increase the longevity of, of, of your brand. It's also going to reiterate that there are Netflix titles kind of on this quality level that's on par with what the other five big studios, it used to be six, but Disney acquired Fox are putting out. Um, it's also going to say like, hey, we want this to be an event. We want people to talk about this. We want people to go and watch a Netflix film in theaters. And that's extremely different from the consumer behavior that they've taught their subscribers, which is like, we want you to be able to watch it at home whenever you want. Watch it in 10 minute intervals. Like what? Like it's up to you. And while that worked to your earlier point, Jason, when Netflix had no competition and it was like, cool, there's a new movie on here and I'm, I, it's the only streaming service I have, I'm going to watch it. That does not work when if you've got a new movie premiering, on May 27th, uh, not that Netflix necessarily would, but you've also got like Stranger Things and Obi-Wan and then you go to August Then what you're competing with House of the Dragon and Lord of the Rings. And there's like all these other things that are happening on streaming services that are going to, that people are going to say, well, you know, there's my Friday, there's my Sunday, there's my Wednesday. Like I, I don't need to necessarily watch this movie. I'll get around to it. Maybe, you know, the, the, the numbers that we see on some Netflix movies are not by any means unimpressive like there there are impressive numbers on them but the question about netflix always especially with its film is its longevity so if you're creating one and a half films a week uh and you're not getting the roi on those films that you really need in terms of subscriber growth and in terms of churn reduction then you have to find other avenues and you have to find other co-partners to go in and say like we are not going to spend everything up front. Um, the way Netflix has been operating on both the film and TV side is insanely expensive on their end because they thought it would pay off. And while it did in like 2015, 2016, it is not paying off in 2022. So you have to go and say like, we're not going to put up all the money. We're going to co-finance. We're going to figure out co-distributors. We're going to be in theaters for some of it. And we're going to start acting like a traditional studio. Because why do, you know, why do I say that? Because it still works for the studios. Like there's a reason studios are still in theaters. Like it is, there is a very healthy um, even now, even with the box office attend, uh, excuse me, with theatrical attendance down 40% compared to 2019. Um, and, you know, it's per capita, it's been declining for, you know, two decades. Like, it's not, this is unsurprising. Um, but we do know that people are going to see more type of one movie. So they're like going to see a Marvel movie or they're going to see a Star Wars movie, whatever it might be. There's like a handful of movies that Netflix could put out that has the right cast, the right genre, the right kind of hype around it. Or they could go to theater, they could pull like $350 million dollars. $400 million. And it's not going to be a huge profit sector for them. But if they if they allow someone like a Lionsgate, like a Sony, who they have a strong relationship with, to co-distribute this movie, and then they get the theatrical and they get the streaming side of it, it's only going to help their brand. And also, last point on this, the demand from, from the data that I look at, and I look at movie demand constantly and part of my job, the bump that streaming services get from a movie in the, that is in theaters is strong. It is, it's not like it goes to a streaming service and then it, like there's no other additional bump in, in, um, in, uh, consumption or an interest or conversation or whatever it might be. There is a bump. Now, is it as strong as the first week? No, it's never going to be like for, you know, the, the Batman on HBO Max 45 days later is not going to be the same as the Batman opening weekend, but there is a significant bump and when these movies come to streaming services and people either rewatch it or the you know the ones who said like i'll wait they're gonna watch it the ones who said i don't necessarily want to go see this movie in theaters it's a netflix movie but i will stay subscribed i will watch it when it comes around and this is happening you know every let's say month and a half so you kind of have a regular routine going it's only going to in my opinion benefit netflix now the last thing i'll say on this i'm saying this as a third-party person Netflix has a team of very, very, very intelligent um, strategy and research analysts who could probably give you 10 reasons why they shouldn't be in theaters. You know, they've done the numbers. They've looked at it. This is not a question that everyone is just suddenly asking and Netflix hasn't thought of. But I do think the 
value proposition of Netflix has changed significantly in the eyes of consumers and the eyes of the street. And now Netflix has to find other ways to really make Netflix feel special again, instead of like, ah, oh, yeah, like it's there, it's in the background, or maybe I come back to it, but I'm not really engaged with it. And theatricality can be a way to do that with the right movie, but it is extremely, extremely difficult to compete, even now when there's 40% less people at theaters than there were pre-pandemic. Um, but you know who would love Netflix and theaters if they could sort out the 45 day, which now Netflix has the has the ability to do. Theaters. Theaters are looking for more movies. There's less movies being released, you know, week out week after week. And there's like, and they're looking to fill those gaps. Netflix can fill that gap where there's less competition and they're and the theaters are gonna say, Yeah, we want people in, we'll work with you on your terms as well. You come to 35 to 45 days. Yeah, I, I think in the long run, even a 30 day, 30 days seems a little extravagant to me, right? Like that's that's pretty good. That's, you know, four weeks of exclusivity is pretty nice. Um, exactly. So, yeah, I, I think it will be interesting to see how this plays out, as is all of this Netflix stuff. But, um, yeah, the, the new Netflix is going to make some decisions the old Netflix wouldn't make. So we'll we'll see. Maybe we'll have to go to the theater to see a night out <laughs> if we want to see it right away. Uh, which I do, which I do. I love that movie. I would so not I wanna, be opposed. I want to see the sequel on the big screen. I, I that was that was the last movie I saw before the pandemic hit was Knives Aww. Out on the big screen. So I have fond memories of that, of seeing uh, seeing Daniel Craig and hearing his crazy accent. <laughs> so I'll do that again. It's be been a murder. One one more Netflix thing before uh, we take our our break, really quickly. Just the piece in Vanity Fair and and, and some other places about um, a new girl. I'll link to the Vanity Fair piece by Savannah Walsh because it's good. And one of the things she writes is, according to multiple documents from the industry's top agencies, Netflix is actively seeking out big, broad stories that can be told on a budget that also contain a hook and a distinctive perspective. Series that emulate Netflix originals Emily in Paris and Never Have I Ever. But perhaps more tellingly, the documents also cite New Girl, a broadcast show whose seven seasons stream exclusively on Netflix. The the the, the meme going around is basically Netflix doesn't want any more sad sitcoms sadcoms like uh master of none but what it wants is new it wants its own new girl which is interesting because new girl is a network tv show with 22 episode seasons that lasted for seven seasons so uh they have never shown the capability of making anything like that what do you make of the of the uh shift in direction here from netflix and can they are they kidding themselves like if they find their own new girl would they really make more than three 10 episode seasons of it <laughs> right so i've had many thoughts on this on twitter over the last few weeks if anyone um who follows you know both jason and i on twitter might have seen um <laughs> here's my thoughts so the, the the first thing that we have to really break down is the revenue structure for why those shows exist is so different from why they don't exist on netflix or excuse, excuse me is the exact reason why they don't exist on, on netflix on broadcast, you have to hit a certain rating and a certain demo to keep advertisers pretty happy. Like that, and let's be honest, the networks, they, they love the shows they put out, they believe in the talent, but they're working for advertisers. Like they are trying to get advertisers to give them money so they can make more shows that they're really proud of, et cetera, et cetera. Easy concept. That means that a show like New Girl, which could pull like, let's say like a 2.0 rating and like the 18 to 49 demographic, which is like Nielsen terms that they don't really matter. But for the networks, they matter in the advertisers. That means you can keep New Girl going because it's enough to bring advertisers in. There's enough of an audience. So for a company like Fox and uh, I think Chernin Group, actually, Peter Chernin produced it um, or created that show uh, alongside Fox for, for a network like Fox. It's an easy decision to say, yeah, we'll renew it. There's, there's people like people are are watching, even if it's smaller than what it might be on a streaming service. The advertisers are happy. We like the show. It's getting a lot of good attention. And by the time we hit the fifth season, fourth, fifth season, we can syndicate it. And then there's additional revenue coming in. And also because it's the age of streaming, we can sell or not sell. We can license past seasons to Hulu or to Netflix, and we'll find that audience there. And as I was talking about the CW, you get a, you get a little Netflix bump. Now there's new audience, and because it's Fox, people have access to it. They're gonna watch it. So there's this like never ending cycle of like why it would make sense for a broadcaster to really lean into something like a comedy or in a drama um, and really kind of drag it out for five, six, seven seasons, potentially not always. I'll, I'll, more shows are canceled on broadcast than they are, you know, renewed and then go that length. But you've got you have your hands on gold. You have your hands on gold. That makes sense for a broadcaster. The Netflix um uh economic excuse me economic model did ha does not have that it does not have advertisers who are saying 
we want this eight, you know, the eight thirty p.m. spot on, on Fox on uh, Tuesday. They don't have people coming in and saying like, "Oh, well, actually, if I watch, you know, um, the first season of the show on Netflix, I'm going to be here when the second season premieres. Like, I'm going to and I'm going to be here week after week after week." They're not going to do that, especially the way Netflix operates and when they binge drop. So for Netflix, the question of what creates value for them, the question of what is the valuation of a title is: Does this show engage someone enough? to keep them subscribed month after month? What is their affinity, but the consumer, the consumer affinity to the show specifically, is it leading to other, um, uh, to, to additional watch time via recommendations to other shows that they might pick up? So they watch New Girl, they get a uh, recommended Arrested Development, they dig into it. Um, also, what is the length of this? Is this something that if we keep on our service, coming like Friends, which is 10 seasons, The Office, which I think is eight or nine seasons, someone will correct me on that. Um, uh, you know, like that's a lot of watch time. If someone's looking for a comfort show, that's the reason they keep subscribed, even if they're not watching it every single day. This may makes this title extremely valuable to us, uh, it, especially if the license, when they first negotiated it, was not super expensive. And so now they kind of figure this out. So for Netflix to go, we want a new girl. Yeah. I mean, who doesn't? Like, they all want a new girl. The question to your exact, to your point, Jason, is, you know, does Netflix say, well, in order to get to this point with this character development, to create the 6, 7 season the 100 and 120 episode uh show that gets people to watch things over and over and over again and really develop a relationship with these characters does that make sense for us economically normally i would say and i mean it depends like can you create a new girl first and foremost like that's the first question can you create a new girl let's see second of all well, how in that first and second season of the show, are you seeing enough to generate enough revenue for you to say, well, we're going to do this? Or maybe you say, like, we're going to take a test on it. We're going to let it run to four or five seasons. Um, and then we're also going to cancel other shows to make room for it because we believe in the longevity of this. Like, maybe you, you make all those kind of decisions. But what has changed is that Netflix is bringing ads in. And so Netflix can right. say, we're going to run pre-roll ads on this. All of a sudden, they've got a similar, not not entirely, because broadcast is still very, very different. Right. But now they have a similar revenue input where they're like, well, we have the ads and we have this kind of show that we're trying to run. And we think that the ads will help us boost revenue to keep this going longer. And we can also still study, because we're an SVOD service, what the affinity is between consumers who come in for the show to the rest of our product, to what is the value of this title in keeping our uh, decay rate, which basically just means like if there's no new season, how what is the drop in demand for a show um, to keeping our decay rate low? Once they can look at all those questions, it becomes a little bit easier to say, well, we'll renew that show for another season because we have the ad money coming in. We think it makes a lot of sense. And the last thing I'll say on it, though, is to your to the the point Jason made uh, earlier when he was talking about the article um, is Netflix specifically said we don't want any sad coms. Netflix's best show without question this is subjective but is BoJack Horseman one of Netflix's most acclaimed shows is is Ma- uh, Masters of None. Yeah. Um. You know, there a lot of the satcoms are what people really love about Netflix, and so I, I think there is this question about like. I, we talked about this in the last episode and we were talking about Kim Master stories at the Hollywood Reporter where somebody pointed out, you know, like Ted Sarandos and his team are really great watchers. They're not necessarily great pickers. And I think that's what they need is someone who can go like, I don't care what the genre is. Like, I don't care what type of show this necessarily is. Like, you might say like, oh, we want more cooking shows. Like, sure, whatever. But to say like, we don't want that anymore because we think as a blanket genre, it's no longer working for subscribers. I mean, like the idea of succession and billions, like shows about like private equity and capital, like shouldn't work for consumers who are like extremely, for the most part, not into finance, like for for the most part. But it does because those are character driven stories and they're really great and the acting is phenomenal. So I kind of hope that they move away from we don't want these blanket statements to saying like we understand that the revenue is changing and that gives us leeway to try and experiment with new things. Right, and I kept them saying, look, we want to, we want to develop more broad appeal shows and those shows might have a little narrower appeal but it, it the edict uh if it is one has a real um jeff bezos's memo about what how to make a good show which is like oh yes well thank you uh internet billionaire who obviously knows how tv shows and creativity works right it, it's a corporate thing where you're like hmm it's not no that's not how it works you can't just say 
no more of that now more of this and we'll get a hit and it'll be great it's like well that's it's it's way more complicated than that um so yes it, it probably maybe growing pains maybe just the pain of change here um my only other wacky thought was um but i like your idea about the ad streaming changing the game a little bit was i was thinking would netflix ever make a deal with a with a studio or with them with themselves that involved a broadcast tv window for something like that right like could you make a new girl by partnering with fox and saying we actually want some sitcoms that will you can you can monetize over there with your ad space and then we are gonna suck it into our uh our 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 uh, our our universe for the rest of time where it's almost like reverse engineering the old flow of sitcoms to netflix except now netflix is basically saying up front let's make sitcoms for tv so that we can have them is there does that does that pencil out or is it just not uh, something that makes financial sense for either party no, I mean, I, I think that it comes down to the kind of co-financing and the co-distribution. I think there's absolutely a conversation we had. What what I think Netflix should be doing like almost immediately, and I don't know why they haven't up to this point, although maybe now they are spurred by this turn in the market and their subscriber slowdown, um, they should be licensing their shows to fast channels, fastest free ad supported yeah. stuff. They like Pluto TV. Like we know that their Paramount audience who likes Paramount shows likes Netflix. Like they're on. It's a very strong overlap. Um, there is opportunity for Netflix to take a bunch of these shows that don't necessarily are, are either in either category are either leading to strong subscribe or either uh, excuse me strong with subscribers but are not necessarily growing subscribers anymore which means that people on netflix like it but people outside of netflix might not know about them or are shows that you created like four or five seasons of something like the ranch no one's really watching it but actually people on fast channels might watch it because it's got ashton kutcher and it's like the netflix brand and people are like oh if i can watch it for free i might do it um you know uh, grace and frankie is a very successful show for netflix that's like seven seasons like there's room for them the kaminsky method there's room for them to license those shows out to an audience who's not necessarily on netflix but would be into those shows Mm -hmm. um and would watch free television and this is just a way for netflix to again Earn some additional revenue, bring that stuff in, help them with their own product going forward, their own strategies, and also the, like increase the brand. Like we, right. the, the one I always come back to is, you know, HBO really struggled for a long time, even with its first litany of, of extremely popular shows until they started selling um, Sopranos DVDs. And then it became a really big deal where people were like, oh, HBO, like I have the DVDs, you know, like my boyfriend always talks about this. He never watched HBO growing up, but he bought every Sopranos box set. Like he bought like the wire box sets, like he, that was his thing. And it opened it up to a mainstream audience. Netflix doesn't necessarily do physical packaging, although they do sometimes, but not as much. Um, but there is an opportunity to do that same kind of idea within the Fast Network. Right. And because you're not competing with Fast, like you're not competing with Pluto TV. And because you get to choose what shows you want to put on the Netflix channel that you would own. And it's their ad tech and it's their ad sales. So you don't have to worry about that because that's one of the Netflix has no experience with that yet. Uh, You just hand it off to somebody else as a partner. and, And that's really interesting. Yeah. Again, this is why we talk about Netflix now and why it's so interesting is that Netflix has to recalibrate. And I have no doubt that they're going to do some really creative things, but uh, all the all bets are off about Netflix behavior. It's fun. It's like, what will they do next? And and, you know, and they're moving fast, too. That's something that we didn't even talk about. Um, uh, But uh, they're now talking about the ad stuff maybe coming by the end of the year, which is amazing because they have no ad tech of any kind and no background in it. And they initially announced it sort of haphazardly and said it would be in a year or two and suddenly it's sooner it's like things are happening real fast at netflix right now and we'll mm-hmm. we'll talk about it here we'll keep mm-hmm. our listeners uh, up to speed about it uh, let me take a break and tell you about our sponsor this episode of downstream is brought to you by pocket casts you're listening to a podcast right now how good is the app you're using to listen is it mixing your music and podcasts into one confusing experience oh i know what app they're talking about there Uh, does it have all the features you need is it thoughtfully designed by people that listen to podcasts each and every day why not try something new pocket casts it is built by podcast listeners for podcast listeners. No matter how you listen to, pocket, to podcasts, Pocket Cast will have you covered. And that includes the fact that it is on iOS and Android 
and the web and seamlessly syncs between them. It supports Amazon Alexa and Sonos smart speakers. It has CarPlay and Android Auto and Android Automotive support so you can listen in your cars. It's got a curated discovery section so you can find your next podcast. It has Apple Watch support, including offline playback. What doesn't it do? AirPlay, Chromecast support. It's got a listing listing history and stats so you can see what podcasts you've been listening to and how many podcasts you listen to in your life. It automatically rewinds the podcast if it's been a while since you listened so you can catch up on the context of where you were. There is so much in here. Last week, uh, last episode, I mentioned uh, you don't want to listen in the web, and, the, and and somebody wrote in to say, "Well, but Pocket Cast works on the web." It's like, well, that's not what I mean. I mean, you're at the uh, a podcast website and you press play in the like HTML5 play uh, audio embed thing, and then you sit there and listen. And it's like that's no good. You can do better. P- Pocket Cast. Here's the thing: free. It's free to use, but they do have some premium features that you can get because you listen to this podcast. So go to pocketcast.com slash downstream, download pocketcast and redeem a six month free trial of all of those premium features that make up pocketcast. Plus, of course, it's a plus. And if you're already a pocketcast user, but haven't tried the premium features yet, you can redeem the offer and do it. You can, you, you can do it now, regardless. If you're already using PocketCast, try out the premium stuff. Go to PocketCast.com slash downstream to find out more. Thank you to PocketCast for supporting downstream and all of Relay FM. Really quickly wanted to talk about Disney results. Um, they beat Wall Street's expectations in terms of the Disney Plus subscriber number. Hulu added 300,000 subscribers. ESPN Plus added a million subscribers. Um, I'll link to a couple articles in our show notes. Uh, Hollywood Reporter article about this um, says, uh, quotes, this is interesting, Bob Chapek. uh, They asked him about ESPN and the fact that ESPN content isn't on ESPN Plus because of what we've been talking about here forever, which is all that sweet, sweet cable money still coming in. And I I wanted to read what Chapek said because it's really interesting. Linear networks are cash generators. There it is. The hesitancy to move too fast away from those is really a cash flow situation. At some point, when it is going to be good for our shareholders, we will be able to fully go. When we decide to do it, it will be the ultimate fan offering that appeals to super fans of sports, and it is really only ESPN that could pull that off. So I think that's interesting in that JPEG is trying to, I think, pretty clearly elaborate, like, why don't they have a streaming strategy for base ESPN right now, which is money and yet also yes we know this would be really a great product if we could do it and the moment that it makes sense financially for us to do it we'll do it but not before then and then um and then i'll also link to a matt bellany piece at puck where he talks about the lower average revenue per user arpu for disney um about bob chapek's choices about like taking the pixar movies and running them direct to disney plus which loses out on theatrical revenue and a general permeating skepticism that maybe bob chapek isn't the right guy for the job that that's all kind of floating out there it's very much a uh piece where matt bellany's just sort of saying don't you think he looks tired that's a reference to doctor who uh about about bob chapek but um but the numbers did surprise Wall Street, so I think that's interesting. What is what are your takeaways from the Disney results? It's strong quarter for Disney yeah. in terms of subscriber growth. If we just yeah, let's let's just well, this is a streaming podcast. We'll focus on streaming for the most part. Disney has many many um, uh, products and tentacles. Yes, yeah, many tentacles. Exactly. Um, I mean, here's the thing. So there's always a caveat with Disney's growth because. On the one hand, 7.9 million subscribers added. It's great. Like that's it, and it was the, the best thing you needed to end the quarter because it was a bit of a rough quarter starting out. Obviously, started rough with Netflix, kind of you know picked up with HBO Max and, and Discovery and um, even Peacock over at NBC. Um, they all had pretty good quarters, and then Disney had like a pretty strong quarter. So it's a nice way to end it. The caveat with Disney always is that more than 50% of Disney Plus's continued growth comes from Hotstar. Hotstar is in India. The reason why Hotstar saw like 5 million subscribers, like 4.5 million subscribers this quarter was because um, IPL, which is cricket, is back. Disney plus Hotstar has the rights to it. So you get a really strong growth. That's why they actually saw a bit of a decline in Hotstar uh, two quarters ago because the IPL was not on. It was delayed. 
so they actually went down. Um, the issue is that the ARPU for Disney Plus Hotstar is something like, I mean, it's growing incrementally, but it's something like a dollar, like six cents, I think, or it's like a dollar and four cents. To put that into comparison, the ARPU, which is, again, the average revenue per user, it's like how much uh, they make based on their, you know, per customer. Um, in the ARPU in UK, the United States and Canada is like six fifty six. Like like six dollars fifty six cents. Like it, it's a huge difference. So if you're Disney Plus and you've got one hundred and thirty at this point, it's one hundred thirty nine point seven. I can't remember the exact number, but something around there. Let's say you've got one hundred forty million subscribers. If you've got forty five million coming in from Disney Plus Hotstar, uh, and the, you're making a dollar and six cents per those forty five million subscribers, the other ones you got the other half are coming in from UCAN and EMEA and you're making between, you know, like and LATAM and you're making like, let's say, between six dollars and six dollars and like seventy cents uh per customer. The actual revenue that you're making on your streaming product, even at 140 million subscribers, it's going to be less than the average revenue that a comp- that a streaming service like HBO Max is making on its on its users, even with one third of the global sub- uh, excuse me with with half of the global subscriber base. Um, this is always Netflix's thing. When Netflix points this out about Disney, they all they point this out quite often. And- you can get caught up in the ARPU because it's a way for a lot of people to say like, well, this isn't, you know, a huge business driver for for Disney. I think the issue that Disney has, you know, because they're growing. Like, I think first and foremost, like, they're finding an audience. They're launching in a bunch of different territories over the summer, which will help them with their subscriber growth. Although we have been told by their CFO, Christine McCarthy, to expect a bit of a slower subscriber growth than they anticipated. Remember, um, two quarters ago, they said we expect really strong subscriber growth in the latter half of, of fiscal 2022. Now they're saying that might not be as strong as they thought it was, but they'll still see some growth. And if you're Disney... The biggest issue you have is that because you promised like two point like I, I can't remember the exact number, but it's like somewhere between two point five and three times the multiple growth on your streaming product, which is what the street is interested in now. Um, because you made that promise of two hundred thirty million to two hundred sixty million Disney Plus subscribers by fiscal year twenty twenty four, you have ten quarters left to hit that number uh, to re- and to stay on track with it without you know changing guidance. They can always change guidance on it, um, and that would probably, unless the guidance goes higher, if they were to lower their guidance, um, it's not great for your stock. Disney stock, I think, is sitting around like 104 bucks. The last time I checked, uh, might be a little bit higher at this point, might be a little lower. It's not great. You don't want to dip under 100, especially in a bear market. Like it's, it's, it's a stressful time, so you really want to hit that guidance. That's like 10 million subscribers a quarter. At this point, to catch up to, to that number, that's an that's a that's a tall order, even for a company like Disney, even when they're launching in different countries, even as they have that coming in. Um, and so now you've gotten to this question with Disney Plus about okay, let's say you hit that two hundred thirty million subscribers, the majority of it is probably not going to be done with Disney and Star Wars at this point. Disney and Star Wars are really big retention drivers. The only reason, the only way that their acquisition drivers are in territories that have not launched yet, because people who are going to watch those shows have it already. Those movies are going to watch it already. This is why you hear Bob Chapek speak all the time about the importance of general entertainment and like why it's a low cost initiative for them but it's really you know they're they're optimistic it's really strong um revenue and subscriber growth if they invest more into that that's why you see shows like dancing with the stars which is an abc thing it's moving a big part of it to disney plus it's why you're seeing certain titles go to disney plus that could be on hulu like the the marvel's um netflix stuff that which is a little bit more adult oriented it's why you're seeing them say they're open to bringing stuff to disney plus that is not necessarily family friendly in including in the u.s I mean, Star internationally is a whole other issue. But um, with Disney specifically, there is this always, there's always this big asterisk with their growth because it is the combination of the ARPU and it is the combination of, well, what is driving that subscriber growth? So if we look at it again, like Disney Plus Hotstar gained, like, I think it was like 3.5 or 4 million subscribers. It was like half. They gained half of the subscribers came from Disney Plus Hotstar. We can associate that to IPL. Then you've got another 2 million internationally, 2 million domestically. With two million domestic, that's actually pretty great because it's like, well, what do they come in for? Like, what was it about? You know, that's that's my question. I think I was tweeting about this before the call. I was like, I would love for them to absolutely pull out the, like the data on what percentage of non Marvel, non Star Wars, non franchise titles are driving 
uh, sustainable and even if it's incremental growth to Disney Plus specifically, either within the bundle or without the bundle. Because once you sign up, they can see what the first thing you watch. It's a very big part of how they conduct their data research. Um, and then what you watch next. Um, and then what you, the last thing you watch before you cancel. It's kind of a big thing for them to, to figure out how they can, how they change their strategy across the board at all these companies. So for Disney, those 2 million subscribers domestically are far more important to me than the 7.9 million they've added overall. Because if we assume that the other ones came from IPL, we assume the other ones are coming from like launching in new territories. We assume internationally that a lot of that is probably Star. My bet would be that there be the general programming on Star, which is like Hulu Originals, Fox Originals, are bringing in subscribers. I want to know what percentage of non-franchise programming is driving growth and retention on Disney Plus domestically, where your ARPU is still the highest. And I think once you can answer that question. You can start to figure out what Disney's next strategy step should be for the next, you know, eight quarters. Like, where are we investing the content? So I think the fact that Chapek is saying we want to invest in, in general and in, in general entertainment programming suggests to me that Disney Plus domestically has some pretty strong uh, consumption around the general entertainment programming offering that they already have on Disney Plus and that they're seeing on Hulu. And more importantly, what they're seeing on Star and Star Plus in EMEA and LATAM and APAC. I think that is really a core part of them saying there is inherent value at one third the cost of what we're spending on our $25 million an episode franchise shows um, that we still need to make because that's a big part of our of our core identity. But we, you know, to grow, we have to look elsewhere. And so I think when you when you look at Disney earnings, I always recommend going into the breakdown. They break it down really well. Actually, they're one of the, the best companies in terms of this. They will break down exactly how much ARPU has grown per region, and they'll actually break down um, what their subscriber growth is per region. They always break it down into Disney Plus Domestic, Disney Plus International, and Disney Plus Hotstar gets its own thing. This is because analysts kept asking about Disney Plus Hotstar, and I imagine sent very um, strong emails to a lot of the executives because they wanted to know this exact thing. Uh Go into that and really add it up. Because if you start seeing Hotstar, you know, let's say they add 4.5 million subscribers next quarter. If Hotstar is 3 million of those subscribers, International is a million, and they're adding like half a million domestically, you know, that is the question. That is like, well, where's the, where, where is the ceiling for Disney Plus? And I think to add on top to all this, the reason to Jason's the first point we talked about in this podcast for bringing it around, you know, the reason we talk about Netflix again is that North Star. So the big question that Netflix has brought to the domestic market is what is the ceiling? What is the TAM in UCAN? If the benchmark for that is 75 million, and I don't think it is, I think it's sitting at 75 million right now because Netflix has a quality issue. Netflix has a price issue. Netflix has a bunch of other issues. I don't think 75 million is like the top of their, uh, of what the percent is the number that most that you're going to get to for all these companies in terms of streaming subscribers in the United States. But hypothetically, if the benchmark is 75 million and Disney sits at 44 million, 45 million in, in, in domestically, we can imagine, ha- you know, the majority of those are, pe- are families or the majority of those are people who have uh, or are Star Wars Marvel fans. Where do you get your next 30 million subscribers? What's the and I refer to this always as your Hamilton moment. What is the next Hamilton moment? Mm. But then more importantly, because as we saw with Hamilton, which uh, is to Disney plus what um, uh, Game of Thrones was to HBO now, the churn that comes from consumers who subscribe to it and they want to watch it and then they're going to cancel because there's nothing else there. You know, what is the general entertainment programming that then supplements it so that your retention is high as well as your growth, your subscriber growth? So I don't, I don't, I'm going to start, I'm going to stop rambling because I've been talking for a hot minute, but whenever Disney plus uh, or Disney reports earnings, when we look at streaming, that's always the big question. The other one, very tangent, very small, very quick is, um, Hulu and ESPN Plus. Hulu and ESPN Plus look like they have insane growth. Hulu a little bit slower. Um, ESPN Plus is like grown like like a hundred and eighty percent or something. I don't know. That was a random number, but it's like an insane growth um, thanks to the bundle. The bundle counts uh, one subscriber is three, right? Like it it naturally counts right. if you sign up and you're automatically a Hulu subscriber and ESPN subscriber. It's why they don't necessarily talk about consumption. Um, the closest we get with Hulu is that their ad inventory is selling out. Um, advertisers very much want to know what the what we know what the consumption patterns are, what the viewership patterns are. Um, they want to be on Hulu, which is a good sign, and it's still growing pretty incrementally, which is nice. Um, but there's like the, the other big question is like 
well, is, is the future of the Disney bundle. We know that the Disney bundle has the second lowest churn. It might have just overtaken Netflix, actually, as the lowest churn in all streaming in the United States, which means that people are in the bundle are not going to cancel or at the lowest rate of canceling. It's like 2.1%. Um, you know, how do you work with that bundle option when you need to bring more general entertainment programming away from Hulu into DS, into Disney Plus? Like, what does that look like? How does that affect what Hulu becomes? And how does that affect how people want to sign up for the bundle? And to your point, like, how does ESPN play into that? So it's a really exciting time for Disney, both domestically and internationally. My big question, though, always is like, I want to know that breakdown of non-franchise programming driving subscriber growth and subscriber retention, because that's going to be a huge part of Disney hitting 230 to 260 million subscribers, both domestically and internationally. When do you think the the ESPN thing, when do you think that number does make sense, the cash flow situation uh, for shareholders, for them to really think about saying, we're going to offer ESPN over you know basically over the top as part of espn plus or as an additional thing and it will be broken out of the cable bundle do you think that that is anytime soon or is that just are we going to be milking the cable money for a long time yet next few years i I, here's what i think happens with with espn espn plus i think eventually it's just my opinion i think eventually ESPN is offered as a standalone option. It's still within the cable bundle, but ESPN figure Disney figures that out and they say we're going to take ESPN, we're going to charge you 30 bucks a month, 25 bucks a month, you're going to get ESPN and we're going to throw in I don't know, Hulu's free or something. Like you're going to get Hulu free, Disney Plus at this point, 2 years, 3 years, I don't say 2 years, excuse me, like 3 4 years, 3 4 years time Disney Plus costs 11 bucks, maybe 10 50 dollars, 10 10 50 a month. Uh, we're going to give you Hulu free. You get ESPN. You get Disney Plus. Disney Plus at this point also includes ABC programming. It includes uh, a bunch of other stuff. Disney has effectively recreated its mini bundle in the way that Warner uh, Discover, excuse me, Disco- uh, Warner Brothers Discovery is about to. Um, I think it works for Disney. I think there is a growing audience of people who want to watch sports who do not want to buy cable. We talk about this all the time. Right. I think football and basketball are finding a younger audience again. I think baseball is, is trying to. Hockey seems to kind of be touching upon a younger audience. We'll see if that continues. If you can find that younger audience who's really into sports and are willing to spend the equivalent of what a um, a Sling TV is um, on, on a Disney bundle and they kind of get most of what they need and then there's some other free options are out there or, or whatever it might be. I think ESPN becomes that, but they don't remove it from the cable bundle at well, all. Right. That's exactly right. Like they may have to renegotiate with the cable providers and take a lower yes. fee. Yes. Um, but the fact is the cable providers, ESPN is still going to be something that keeps people on cable uh, some to some degree. And uh, and they'll they'll keep getting money there. They're not going to cut it all off. But, yeah, they're going to have to renegotiate what they're getting from from cable. Yeah. Um, Okay, so we've gone a little long. We're going to skip the letters this time, but please send Sorry, us friends. letters. Um, you know, if you've got a question for us, uh, downstream at relay.fm, we appreciate it. We'll do mega letters uh, in two weeks unless something blows up. We'll we'll do lots and lots and lots of letters next time. Obviously, tweet at us at Downstream Pod. Uh, follow us there too. Love to your mothers. Uh, Julia is at Loudmouth Julia on Twitter and ParrotAnalytics.com. Of course, she'll be directing things there, but probably not movies. <laughs> Uh, you can find me at jsnell on twitter and sixcolors.com and that's it Julio this was a packed show uh, so much going on right now uh, thank you so much for all the, the, the I mean this was a download of from your brain in this podcast so I, I really appreciate I, I it I apologize friends I, I, next time I will not ramble as, as much I promise no, it was all, <laughs> all just good stuff um, so thank you so much thanks to everybody out there for listening we'll see you in two weeks with lots of letters until then bye 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 guys <laughs>